0: Welcome back everyone to the Practicology Podcast. This is episode 129, God's Will in Hard Places. Normally when Matthew and I record these, we're 3500 kilometers away from each other, doing it over the web, but uh, really happy to be in the Kane Recording Studio together today. And really happy to have you with us too. This is our last episode as we go through the August Summer Challenge. We're memorizing Psalm 25 together. Matthew's going to be taking us through verses 16 to 22, the final verses of the psalm today. Of course, you still have some more time to work on the memorization of this psalm. We've given a deadline up till September 11th at midnight to contact us and let us know that you finished it. So you still have some more time there. Remember that there are prizes for those who complete. We are offering uh, Kevin DeYoung's book, on finding the Will of God. And also, what is it, Matthew? J.I. Packer's book on the will of God. And then maybe another book that we'll be uh, going through in the February reading challenge in 2024. So some options to choose from. There's also a few Practicology podcast shirts remaining, which are pretty hot items to pick up. And we really encourage you to uh, be diligent and wrap up the memorization of this psalm. All right, so that's enough about that, Matthew. How about you take us right into the psalm then and give us verses 16 to 22. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am alone and afflicted. The distresses
1: of my heart increase, bring me out of my sufferings. Consider my affliction and trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, they are numerous and they hate me violently. Guard me and rescue me Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and what is right watch over me, for I wait for you.
0: God, redeem Israel from all its distresses. Very good. Thank you, Matthew. Well, it's certainly been hinted at at various places in this psalm already that David is in a tight spot in this psalm. And uh, that that is reinforced in these verses you've just gone through, Matthew. It's clear that he's in a really hard spot, right? Yeah, he is alone and afflicted in the words of
1: verse 16. The stresses are increasing. In fact, David describes the hard place he is in with no less than six references in verses 16 to 18. He says he's alone, he's afflicted, he's in distress, uh, he's got sufferings, affliction again, he mentions, and then trouble. And on top of that, some people hate him. And he's waiting for God in these circumstances. More than likely, that's the circumstance of some of our listeners today as well, I expect, Mike. So to our listeners, I want to encourage you to go ahead and let Psalm 25 be your heart prayer. Don't just memorize it. Let it be the breathings of your own soul. Dale Ralph Davis says, We may crave something far more orderly than Psalm 25's ragtag plea about deliverance, guidance, and forgiveness. But this messiness is likely closer to real Christian experience than some nauseous discussion on four steps to the recovery of Christian equilibrium. So let's stick with the psalm. And let's stick with asking God for guidance, even in the hard places. And where is God's leading when life is hard? Verses 12 to 13 said, The person who fears the Lord will be shown the way he should choose. He will live a good life. So where's the good life? Amidst the affliction and distress and trouble. At the end of this psalm, where's the good life in your affliction right now? Well, for starters,
0: a good life is generally not an easy life. Yeah, that's so true. And so in answer to your question, Matthew, uh, where is the good life amidst the distresses and troubles and trials? I guess the answer is, well, it's right there. It's, it's found right there in the middle of those distresses and trials. Yeah, it can be uh, because God's will often involves suffering. We all need to keep
1: this in mind, beloved listeners. Firstly, hardship doesn't mean that you are necessarily out of God's will. Hardship doesn't necessarily mean you are out of God's will. At the beginning of Psalm 25, David's asking for guidance. In the middle of the Psalm, he's speaking confidently about God's guidance. And now at the end of the Psalm, he's in a hard place. So hardship doesn't necessarily mean you are out of God's will Just imagine this situation, actually. Perhaps a a young believer decides they want to be baptized. Well, that's doing God's will, isn't it? It's following his guidance in the scriptures. So she gets baptized and she feels like she's doing really well, reading and praying. She's walking close to the Lord. And then someone backs into her car in the church parking lot. And they blame her for parking where she did. And then she doesn't have a way to get to the the conference that she was hoping to go to on the weekend. And then her job cuts back her hours and she can't afford to pay for the repairs and on it goes. And everything seems to be going wrong. And if she's doing such a good job of
0: obeying God, why would God let things get so messed up? Or think of a more delicate situation even. Um, You've got a buddy and he's pursuing a relationship with someone and as you... Watch this. You're really concerned because you don't think this relationship is a good idea and you've got pretty stable reasons for thinking so. And so you pray about it and you're seeking guidance from scripture. You're thinking of a verse like Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And, and so you're really confident that you're doing the right thing about approaching them. You do it in a tender way. You follow the right steps. You're, you're confident of God that he's with you in this. And the whole thing just blows up in your face. Your friend is deeply offended. The two of them start being really cold to you and you feel cut out of their friendship. Well, did you do the right thing? You thought God was leading you to talk to him about it. So why has it made things harder? Yeah, you even thought you were obeying scripture and doing it. You had God's will clearly
1: before you. Let me imagine one other example. I'm not thinking of anyone specific as I, as I create this one, but you can imagine how painful it would be. Maybe a newly married couple is wondering whether they should try to have children. They're not super young. The wife is nearing the completion of her studies, or maybe she's about to jump up to a, a new position in her career. Big opportunities that could really set them up well financially, but they pray about it and they're willing to sacrifice that academic or employment opportunity. And sure enough, She gets pregnant. They're expecting a child. They're excited. They believe God has honored their sacrifice. And then maybe the baby's born with major health complications. Or maybe they lose the baby in pregnancy. Why would God let that happen? They were valuing spiritual things over financial gain. They prayed about it. They sacrificed opportunities with a sincere heart towards God. And now things seem worse. Others don't seem to understand the pain she's in, she feels alone and afflicted, in the words of verse 16. The distresses of her heart are increasing. She's suffering. She's in trouble. So, Mike, the question is straightforward. At that example I've just created, were they were they wrong in letting her career opportunity go in order to try and start a family?
0: Well, I think the answer to that is straightforward as well. I think it's a clear no um, to, to give... More than a straightforward answer, though, I think that kind of questioning, that kind of thinking is built on an assumption that if we do everything the way God tells us to, then everything will just work out in the end. In other words, that doing God's will means... Your life is full of positive outcomes and no negative ones. Right. So this suffering that they're now facing, this hard place that they are in, that's actually perfectly
1: consistent with the will of God, you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And while that can catch us off guard, it doesn't need to, in light of God's revelation in Scripture. The words of First Peter three seventeen come to mind, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So doing good can still lead to suffering. Obeying the will of God can still leave us in a hard place. The hardship in and of itself doesn't mean you're outside the will of God. One example that comes to mind in Scripture is Matthew 14, after the Lord feeds the 5,000. He made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side. That's what the Scripture says. He made them get into the boat. It was His direct command, and they obeyed. And when they obeyed, the boat began to be battered by the waves because the wind was against them. So their hardship was not because they were outside of God's will. They had a clear command from the Lord. The Lord sent them into the hardship. Mind you, something beautiful came out of that too, didn't it? The disciples and the disciples alone saw the Lord walk on the water. And think of Peter's experience of walking on the water himself and then being rescued. What a moment. But they only experienced that blessing because the Lord first sent them into a hard place and they obeyed his will.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and along the same line, uh, we, we know the Lord was tempted in the wilderness. And it's so interesting that the gospel writers say it was the Spirit who led the Lord into that hard place. Excellent example. And perhaps the ultimate
1: example then is the cross itself. That was the hardest place any man has ever been. He was delivered there by God himself. His suffering wasn't because he was outside the will of God. His suffering,
0: his experience of being alone and afflicted was the will of God. Yeah, Acts 2 makes that crystal clear. Uh, It says he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. Right. So remember that, beloved, please, that
1: the Lord Jesus walked this path of suffering in the will of God before you and I. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this section of the psalm about being lonely and afflicted. He says, Jesus was in the days of his flesh in just such a condition. None could enter into the secret depths of his sorrows. He trod the winepress alone and hence he is able to help in the fullest sense those who tread the solitary path. Then he quotes an old hymn by Richard Baxter. Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He that into God's kingdom comes must enter by this door. So hardship doesn't mean you are outside God's will. Life is going to be hard sometimes. Doing the right thing is going to be hard sometimes. Obeying God is going to be hard sometimes. Sometimes the will of God is going to involve painful circumstances. It has been so for all the people
0: of faith down through the ages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes we can actually flip that around and say, being in hardship can be a confirmation at times that we're in the will of God. And so it's always right to do the will of God. And as we said in the last episode, uh, the vast majority of the time, doing the will of God simply boils down to obeying the clear teaching of Scripture. But there is no guarantee that when we do that, it's going to be easy. In fact, we know from Scripture that often it will be hard. Mm -hmm. And just because you face some opposition in something, don't automatically, instantaneously assume that you're outside of God's will. Maybe the Lord is going to teach you the grace of perseverance. Maybe he's going to show you his nearness. And those things are likely learned best when life is difficult. True. True, yeah. And there's those words from... Richard Baxter intimated a minute ago, the hard places we walk through
1: are the pathway to the kingdom. Think of Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas strengthened the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That was how they they encouraged them. Well, how is that encouraging? Because the hardships will come, beloved, and it's encouraging to know that God said this would happen. It's part of his will for his people. My God, I know you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings and its precursor, the Hobbit, right? Sure am. Well, recall the scene when Bilbo Baggins is over the edge of the wild and Gandalf tells him, there are no safe paths in this part of the world. What a sentence. There are no safe paths in this part of the world, and you are in for all sorts of fun wherever you go, he says. "'Straight through the forest is your way now. "'Don't stray off the track.' "'Do we really have to go through?' groaned the hobbit. "'Yes, you do,' said the wizard. "'If you want to get to the other side, "'you must either go through or give up your quest. "'And I am not going to allow you to back out now, Mr. Baggins.' "'Is there no way round?' asked Bilbo. "'There is,' replied Gandalf, "'if you care to go two hundred miles or so "'out of your way north and twice that south, "'but you wouldn't get a safe path even then.' There are no safe
0: paths in this part of the world. Hmm. Good lines from a good story with a good lesson there, Matthew. Thanks for bringing us into Hobbit world. I guess as long as we live in a fallen, broken world, obeying God is going to lead us into hard places sometimes. But thankfully, he's always there for us to cry out to him as well. Like David does in this psalm, Turn to me, he says to the Lord. Bring me out of my sufferings. Consider my afflictions and trouble. But then David returns to that theme of his sins, though, doesn't he, Matthew? He says, forgive all my sins. So why are David's sins still factoring into his thinking here? I'm going to respond to your question with a question. Do you, do you have a thought as to what circumstances in life David is writing this? Well, maybe a little bit. We, we know a few things for sure. We know that he's getting on in life because he's talking about the sins of his youth. We know also that he's got a lot of enemies who are really trying to bring him down right now. And, uh, and so it seems, and then he talks about his sin. So it, it does seem that he's, um, he's being opposed and that he maybe thinks that part of the reason all this opposition is mounting against him is, is a consequence of sin he did when he was a younger man. That's good so far, but you haven't given me a specific, circumstance you've got in mind. You're, you're waffling a little bit here. All right. All right. I'll Bring stop waffling. Card. I'll stop waffling. Um, and these sins of, the, of his youth are not like minor little sins, right? These, these have to be pretty grievous. And, uh, and so one circumstance that would fit the bill here is when Absalom, his son, turns against him and he's turned out of his own city and throne. Phew. I was hoping that you'd be on that same page as me. Um, But we do have to be careful of this. We don't know this for sure, right? I'm hastening to add that. Fair enough. It it is true. Uh, The
1: superscription, the psalm doesn't say that, so we don't know that. But we do know that part of what David dealt with in his son Absalom was a consequence of his past sins. Uh, David's oldest son, Amnon, had raped David's daughter, Tamar. And while David got angry, he did nothing about it. Maybe he felt a bit morally hamstrung because of his own past sexual sins. But he erred in not dealing with Amnon. So Absalom, a full brother to Tamar and a half-brother to Amnon, later murdered Amnon. David grieved, but he didn't confront Absalom about his action. So Absalom flees, remember, he, he later returns to Jerusalem. David still fails to confront him. He allows him to live in the capital, but there's no confession of his sin. He, he then freezes him out, so there's no real relationship either. And Absalom's alienation and resentment grow And then Absalom initiates that rebellion that you've mentioned. Others join him. There were many who hated David violently. And then, as is David's way, when he messes up, in time he shows a beautiful dependence upon God. And you see that after all his big failures in life, he seeks again the will of God and he obeys it. But here's our second lesson then coming from all this. Sin doesn't cancel you out of God's will, but it does have consequences. Firstly, hardship doesn't necessarily mean you are out of God's will. Secondly, while some of the hardship we face is partly because of
0: our own sin, sin doesn't cancel you
1: out of God's will. It does have consequences.
0: So I feel like you're choosing your words really carefully there, Matthew. You're trying to give both sides of this. And, and so let's be crystal clear. For a believer like David and like us, we can be 100% confident that we will not be punished for our sins in hell. Amen. We know we'll be in God's kingdom. But, and here's the other side of what you're saying, that does not mean that we can live a disobedient life or dabble in sin and think that there are zero consequences. Right. In grace, God
1: forgives all of our sin, but he doesn't remove all the consequences of it in this life. The novelist Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, everybody sooner or later sits down to a banquet of consequences. That's true. That's that's an echo of what God wrote in the New Testament many years earlier. Whatever man sows, that he will also reap. So the principle of reaping what we sow is still valid even for believers under grace.
0: So you're suggesting here, Matthew, um, something that I think I hinted at just a moment ago, that the reason David makes a few references to his sin in this prayer for guidance is he knows that part of the reason he's in this hard place is that he is reaping what he has sown earlier in life. Yeah. David sowed death, sexual sin, deceit, and betrayal in his sin against
1: Uriah and Bathsheba, and he reaped all of that, sadly, in his own experience down the road. So it is right for us, Mike, to sound a warning from this psalm, not just to our listeners, but to our own hearts, to you and me. Sin has consequences. Disobeying God's will has consequences.
0: And I think that um, as soon as we say things like that, some people take that as legalism. We're, we're teaching legalism, not grace, but that is unfair and, and unbiblical. We remember that we're living in an age of abundant grace, but, but think of some of those churches in Asia in Revelation 2-3. to uh, They're churches, they're living in the church age, the day of grace, but they were facing severe censure from the Lord Jesus, let me point out, the Lord Jesus, because they were not following his word. Or we can think of the church in Corinth. Uh, They seem to be proud of their toleration of sin in the church. And Paul is very clear with them that their attitude is wrong, Mm -hmm. that their sin is serious, and that there needs to be some consequences. Yeah, Spurgeon says, Men are
1: slow to see the intimate connection between sin and sorrow. A grace-taught heart alone feels it. So sin pays, brothers and sisters, and it pays with sorrow. But I want us to see David again here because David knows that God hates sin. David knows that he, a sinner, can come to God with his sins. And David knows that his past sins, while they may be contributors to his hard circumstances, they don't mean he's condemned to live the rest of his life away from God or without the power of God.
0: Yeah, God has not canceled David. God does not
1: operate like the cancel culture around us. And David knows that. So he comes to God a little bit like Lord, I know I've got myself in a mess here, but show me the way out. Show me how to live right in the mess that I'm in. Spurgeon says, when when David says, Forgive my sins, it is the cry of a soul that is more sick of sin than of pain. In other words, he wants to walk with God again. He may be walking in a hard place, but he wants God walking with him in that hard place.
0: So let's take in, brothers and sisters, what Matthew's telling us here, because it is very important. Sometimes we find ourselves in messes that are partly our own doing, or, or at least we wonder if they're our own doing. Well, if there's something to confess, let's confess it. But don't get the wrong idea that God is therefore going to keep you on the outs for a while, that you're stuck on the sidelines of his will, that you don't have a right to seek his guidance. Psalm 25 teaches us otherwise. And you can pray to God the words of verse 20, Guard me and rescue me. Do not let me be disgraced, for I take refuge in you. Hardship
1: doesn't necessarily mean you are out of God's will. Sin or disobedience to God's will does have consequences, but it doesn't mean God's will is canceled for you. Thirdly, God's will is bigger than you. I'm at the fascinating concluding verse of the psalm now, verse 22. God redeem me from all my distresses? No. God redeem Israel. From all its distresses. Now, Dale Ralph Davis is very helpful here in showing that a statement like this helps to reinforce the relevance of Scripture for us. Listen to what he says. What the Psalm depicts of the need of the king is the same kind of need the whole covenant people have. Because the need is similar, the whole people can take an individual prayer and pray it as a corporate prayer. This partly explains why the Psalms have such a grip on God's people today because believers intuitively sense that there is a transferability from the stuff of the psalm to the stuff of their own lives. That's true, that's good. But I I don't think this is written just to give the psalm a broader relevance. I think this is the psalmist's heart. He sees his own need for guidance and deliverance, but he's not so small-minded that he gets stuck there. He sees the people of God around him need guidance and deliverance too. David knows that God's will is bigger than David.
0: And it's bigger than you and me. Yeah, and this reminds me of Psalm 103 that we did a couple summers ago. Because uh, at the end of that Psalm, too, there's this reminder for us to get out of ourselves. And the closing lines here remind us that there's a lot more going on in God's purposes than just me and my problems. Yep, and a great New Testament
1: example of that is the Apostle Paul. He had plenty of afflictions. We've been reading about them here at North Street as we go through 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 says, we are afflicted in every way. We're perplexed, persecuted, struck down. And then he says, everything is for your benefit. That's a remarkable attitude. He displayed the same mindset when he was in prison. I think it was a letter to the Colossians. He writes to them from prison and tells them that he's been praying for them. He's thinking of the challenges others are facing while he's in affliction. It's like David praying for Israel here in Psalm 24. And Paul tells the Colossian Christians that his prayer is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and understanding. He wants them to see God's big picture and the centrality of Christ in that big picture. Remember what comes next in Colossians. It's one of those glorious chapter one portraits of Christ. John one, Hebrews one, revelation one, Colossians one are all intensely and profoundly Christocentric. Christ exalting. So when he prays there in Colossians one, that they'll know God's will I think he means specifically God's will for Christ, his purpose for Christ, that Christ will be preeminent, that it is through Christ that all things will be reconciled to God. Paul knows the will of God is a lot bigger than one man in a prison cell. That one man in the prison cell is part of it. But it doesn't end with him. It doesn't focus on him. It's, it's about more people seeing the glory of
0: Christ. Well, I'm pleasantly surprised to hear that you take the same view of, as I do on Colossians one there on the will of God, Matthew. That's excellent. I'll let you know that you're taking the same view as Sandy Higgins in that too, if oh, it interests you. Great to be in good company, everyone. But, but this is good. And, and this is really relevant in our own personal distresses and afflictions. Um, maybe someone listening feels like they're in a prison cell right now. You feel trapped by your trial. You're between a rock and a hard place. You're in the hard place. And dear brother, sister, that's part of God's will for you. And God is using those circumstances to shape you to fit in his big picture. Think of Romans 8, how the sufferings of this present time lead to glory in the age to come. It says, And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to this purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So there it is again. It comes back to Christ. Mm -hmm. God's will for you is to conform you to the image of Christ. Amen. So We know some of you are in a hard place right now. But it
1: doesn't mean God has forgotten you. It doesn't mean you're outside of God's will. And it doesn't mean you should just shrivel up and have a pity party. And as you pray for God's grace in your own life, you can pray for others that are in distress too. And as you wonder what the next immediate step is that God is guiding you towards, be sure of his purpose for you. In the words of Colossians 1 again, verse 28, that you would become mature in Christ. Actually, Mike, I think that's a, a good text to conclude our consideration of God's guidance from Psalm 25, because last week's episode, we were really emphasizing that the will of God for the Christian is what God has revealed in Scripture. And in Colossians 1:28, Paul says, I love this verse. Paul says he proclaims Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. My point is the pathway to maturity is knowing Christ and receiving the teaching and wisdom that Christ has given us through the apostles. In other
0: words, the scriptures. That's God's way of guiding us. Amen. Thank you, Matthew. This is uh, excellent teaching that you've brought us through. Helpful. And it serves a warning to us if we are becoming complacent with our sin, but it also uh, gives us great comfort if we do feel we're trapped. And partly because of failure in our past, that even here God can meet us in His grace and He can lead us uh, forward. We can make progress right according to His plan and His timing, according to His perfect will for us. Thank you everyone for joining us in this little series on Psalm 25. Remember to keep working on those verses send us a note at info at when you're finished try to get that into us by midnight September 11th and we'll be in touch with you to get you a prize
1: midnight central time
0: or Atlantic time central time to give more grace to everyone alright well I'll be in bed but Mike still be up waiting to hear from you that's right
1: thanks everyone for tuning in may the Lord bless you all